Greetings, this is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Following the death of Stephen, who was one of the seven deacons, a great outbreak of persecution had, had uh, taken place upon the church, scattering them uh, to parts outside of Jerusalem. And another one of the seven deacons had also distinguished himself as a, a great evangelist. His name was Philip. Now this Philip was not one of Jesus's apostles. But this was a man who was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was also a follower of Jesus Christ who had faithfully served the widows in the church along with Stephen and the other five deacons. However, outside of his church responsibilities, he was a powerful evangelist. And his messages were often combined with signs, miracles, and works of deliverance of people from demon possession. We pick up his story in chapter 8. Let me read... Uh, verses 4 through 8 to begin with, and later we'll read verses 9 through 25. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and lame who were healed. And there was great joy in that city. This passage places the ministry of Stephen in the midst of the persecution and dispersion of the church. Philip went north to the territory of Samaria, and the history of Samaria plays into the dynamics of Philip's ministry as there had been great hostility between Israel and Samaria for more than a thousand years. Dr. John Stott provides an excellent overview of the history of Israel and why Samaria was so hated by the Jews. And he writes this, It began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th century BC when 10 tribes of Israel defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. It became steadily worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 BC. Thousands of its inhabitants were deported, and the country was repopulated by foreigners. In the sixth century BC, when the Jews returned to their land, they refused the help of the Samaritans in rebuilding of the temple. Not until the 4th century BC, however, did the Samaritan schism harden with the building of their rival temple on Mount Gerizim and their repudiation of all Old Testament scripture except the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in, in both race and religion, as both heretics and schematics. John summed up the situation in his simple statement that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Therefore, with this kind of a historic background, it is significant that Philip went to Samaria with the gospel 
of the message of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. We need to remember the command of our Lord. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They had been faithful in Jerusalem and in Judea. Now it was time for the next phase, Samaria. Soon it would begin to spread throughout the known world. But we must also remember that Philip was following the example of our Lord, actually taking up where Jesus had left off. You remember that early in his ministry, Jesus went up to a city in Samaria where he sat down on a well at the, in the center of town in the middle of the day. And it was on that day that he spent time talking with a certain woman of the city and revealed himself to be Messiah and Lord. From that encounter, Jesus spent two days talking to and teaching the people in that city. On another occasion, Jesus was passing through Samaria on his way back from Galilee to Jerusalem. And while on the road, he encountered ten men who were lepers, outcasts of their society. They cried out to him for healing and deliverance from their affliction. He instructed them to go show themselves to a priest of Israel. As they were on their way, they were healed. Now out of the ten, only one man came back to thank Jesus and to worship him. The Bible makes a specific mention of the fact that the man who came back was a Samaritan. Yes, throughout Jesus' ministry, he had many encounters with Samaritans. He would teach them, heal them, deliver them, and to love them. He revealed to them that he was the one that Moses had spoken, had promised would come, and that he indeed had come, even to them, to set them free from the bondage of sin and death. So to Philip, it was reasonable to go to Samaria with the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, along with Stephen, uh, was one who, to whom the Holy Spirit had added the spiritual gift of evangelism and the ministry of miracles and healings. Now these signs were used by God to validate the message and the messenger of God, appointed by God for this ministry. And the people responded. Many people were saved as a direct result of his ministry, and they were baptized as a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. As is often the case, when God begins to do a great work among men, Satan will soon follow with his own host of counterfeit teachers and miracle workers. This was true during the ministry of John the Baptist, and also throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. It will also be true during the ministries of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. And so it's not surprising that what follows continues with that pattern. We, we should learn from this. 
not be dismayed when these things happen. Learn from the scriptures about why the frustration and opposition happens, and perhaps even persecution that you are encountering. Why these things are happening and how you should respond when it does happen. We will find those answers in the Word of God. So let's continue reading with our passage. Now be chapter 8, and I'll start reading with verse 9 through 25. And there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. One of the people who was baptized at that time was a man by the name of Simon Magus, as we've just read. This man was well known throughout the city as someone who could do great acts of magic and sorcery. In fact, not only did the people think he was someone special, he also thought he was. And he boasted to all who would listen that he had been especially set apart by a god for these powerful works. Dr. Stott provides us with an excellent insight. He writes this. Commentators think it probable that Simon regarded himself and came to be regarded as some kind of emanation or representative of the divine being. Certainly, in the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr, who himself came from Samaria, 
described a Samaritan Simon who did mighty acts of magic so that he was considered a god and was worshipped not only by almost all of the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Towards the end of the second century, Arrhenius represented him both as glorified by man, as if he were a god, and as the author of all sorts of heresies, while by the third century he had come to be seen as the originator of Gnosticism and the archenemy of the Apostle Peter. So, Simon saw what was happening throughout the city. What Jesus had begun during his earthly ministry, laying a groundwork of faith, well, it was now reaching its fulfillment. And as Philip preached to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and taught them the scriptures that had foretold his coming, many people put their faith in Jesus and were being baptized, which is an outward testimony of the inwork of, that Jesus has done in our lives. It also set them apart as now belonging to Jesus, being his follower and servant. Verse 8 tells us that there was great joy throughout the city. And if you've ever witnessed a baptism service, you will understand that great joy that fills the hearts of all who are there as witnesses. Simon liked what he saw, so he too was baptized. He must have stopped his sorcery for a while because verse 9 says that he had previously practiced sorcery in the city. Verse 13 tells us that once Simon was baptized, he stayed with Philip wherever he went, being a witness to the miracles and signs which were done. Well, word got out. And it was reported to the apostles in Jerusalem that God was doing a great salvation work in Samaria. So they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now this is very interesting. As it was John who had previously wanted to send down fire from heaven to destroy this city. Let's pause for a moment and, and read that account. It, it's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. And it reads this way, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was, face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. How terrible it would have been if John had been able to do that. All of those people would have died without having the opportunity to hear the gospel message and turn to Jesus in faith, believing that he truly is Savior and Lord. But Jesus knew that this day would come. And therefore, 
he would not allow that to happen. When Philip preached the gospel of Jesus, another fire did come. This was the fire of salvation and soon that of the promised Holy Spirit. I say this because when Peter and John arrived, they inquired if the people had also received the Holy Spirit and the answer to that question was no. So Peter and John laid their hands on them and the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them just like it had on the day of Pentecost. And you might want to ask, why, why was there a delay? Because, you know, it, it's clear in Ephesians chapter 1 that when we today receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are immediately sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Let's just pause and read that passage now. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We need to remember that there is always a reason and a purpose for everything that God does as revealed in the scripture. And this is no exception. Dr. Ironside provides us with an excellent observation. He writes this, Why did not these Samaritans receive the Spirit of God the moment they professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Just a little further on into the book of Acts, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, we are told that the moment Peter spoke the words, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them when they heard the word. But here, we have an interval between. The reason, I think, is perfectly clear. For something like 500 years, the temple at Jerusalem and the temple at Mount Gerizim had been rival sanctuaries. The Jews in the south and the Samaritans north of Jerusalem had each claimed to be God's chosen people, and there was intense rivalry between them. One can understand that if the Spirit had immediately fallen on these Samaritan believers when they received the word, then the strife between the Jews and Samaritans might have been perpetuated, and there might have been, down through the centuries, two different groups of Christians, each claiming to be the true church. But when the apostles came from Jerusalem and identified themselves with the believing Samaritans, and God gave the Holy Ghost to them in, in answer to the prayers of the apostles, the work was recognized def definitively and openly as one. There was but one body, whether Jews in Judea or Samaritans in Samaria. All were joined into one body of which the risen Christ was the head. There was not the same danger of two groups when the gospel was brought to the Gentiles who were pagan 
and did not have a religion which was very near akin to Judaism. You know, throughout the New Testament, we are reminded to maintain the unity of the body, to love one another. And even that God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus as our Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. Jews and Gentiles alike find their life and hope and future in Jesus Christ. The same is true for us today. It really doesn't matter what nation you dwell in, what race you belong to, what religious background you come from. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become united in the body of Christ. And we are all united together as brothers and sisters in the Lord, one body, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I am reminded of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. He writes this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. Well, continuing with our passage today, we read that when Simon saw what was happening when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Samaria, he wanted to also have the power to call down the Holy Spirit on people, which was evidenced with signs. However, Peter saw right through Simon. The Holy Spirit had given to Peter the spiritual gift of discernment, and Peter was able to discern that this man was not fully surrendered to Jesus. The wickedness of Simon's heart was fully revealed. And Peter boldly addressed his need to repent of the bitterness and sin that was still in his heart. What is interesting to me is how he chose to respond. Instead of crying out to the Lord for forgiveness of sins, and confessing what was in his heart, 
Simon instead asked Peter to pray for him. This request reminds me of two stories in the Bible. The first one took place in the days of Moses when he was confronting Pharaoh, requesting that Pharaoh release the children of Israel from their bondage to go out into the desert to worship God. Each time Pharaoh said no. God would send a plague against the people of Egypt. Sometimes Pharaoh would say yes in order for the plague to be removed and then he would change his mind and refuse Moses' request. It's a fascinating series of events found in Exodus chapters 5 through 13. In the midst of the series of plagues, Moses had again confronted Pharaoh. This time, it was the fourth plague of flies, a horrendous invasion of flies. Listen to Pharaoh's conversation with Moses, Exodus chapter 8, beginning with verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people, but let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in letting, not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the f swarms of flies from Pharaoh and his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, and neither would he let the people go. Instead of crying out to the God of Moses, Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for him. His repentance was not sincere, as was evidence in his later refusal to keep his promise. There's another story. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15, and it involves King Saul, the first king of Israel. God had commanded him to completely destroy the Amalekites, and Saul obeyed. But only to a certain point. When the prophet Samuel confronted him with the fact, Saul refused to acknowledge his sin and repent. There had been other acts of disobedience and sin previous to this incident, and this refusal to repent would come with great repercussions. So let's read just a little bit of that conversation that Samuel had with Saul. 1 Samuel 15. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, 
I will not return for you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Therefore Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and, and, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. It is clear from the way that Saul made his request that he was more concerned about his appearance before men than he was about his standing before God. You will notice that he asked Samuel to return with him so that he could, quote, worship the Lord your God, end quote. Sa Samuel's God, not Saul's God. Let me say this. It is important for us to remember that there is a belief which results in salvation. But, on the other hand, there is a belief which may not result in salvation. In other words, it is possible to accept many facts concerning Jesus Christ from a merely historical standpoint. But that belief may not result in the salvation of the soul. My question to you is this, is Jesus your savior? Is Jesus your sovereign Lord? Have you fully yielded your life, every aspect of your life to his authority? Have you repented of your sin to Jesus and Jesus alone? Warren Wearsby writes this, Simon's response to these severe words of warning was not at all encouraging. He was more concerned about avoiding judgment than getting right with God. There's no evidence that he repented and sought forgiveness. A sinner who wants the prayers of others but who will not pray himself is not going to enter God's kingdom. This is a very strong warning. Be sure that your salvation is secure. Be sure that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. Perhaps you need to pause right now and pray with a humble heart before the mercy seat of God, crying out to him for his grace and mercy to be poured out on you. And if you pray with a sincere heart, he will hear and answer from heaven. That is his promise. That is our hope. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are greatly moved by what took place on that day when your servant Peter confronted Simon. And we pray, I pray, that you will hear the prayers of your people today when they cry out to you for forgiveness. Have mercy, O God, and answer from heaven. And may the assurance of your forgiveness and the cleansing of sin be confirmed to your children this day, O Lord, I pray.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my dear friends, uh, this uh, we will continue with our study uh, in the book of Acts next week. Uh, we'll continue with another uh, event from the life of Philip. And let me just say this. Um, if you have found these studies uh, helpful to you, or if you have any kind of um, observation that you would like to make, I would uh, uh, invite you to write me. The email address is very simple. It's BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. Just spell it all out, BibleTimeWithJane, all one word, at gmail.com. Well, until we meet again through uh, the power of the internet, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and may he give you his peace.